Let's pray together. Holy Father, as we've heard your word read, and we turn now to hear it proclaimed, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, come. You are welcome here. Overrule and overwhelm. Overrule and overwhelm my mouth and my words, our ears and our hearing, so that what is said and what is heard this morning is in accordance to the word of God for the good of God's people. Come and show us Jesus and use this act of worship, the giving and receiving of the sermon, for your greater glory, O Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. Uh, I hope that it wouldn't catch anybody by surprise if I were to say that life in this world is and can be difficult. What? Is that a surprise to anyone in here this morning? No? It doesn't take the most astute observer to realize that life isn't all raindrops and roses and whiskers on kittens. Life is quite often more dog bites and bee stings as cancer and death, war and conflict, gross immorality, various idolatries, and selfish living define life in this world quite frequently. Life is full of good intentions, warped out of proper shape by sin. We can easily find ourselves asking the question, in the midst of all of this, where is God? Where is his justice? Where is his righteousness? Why is this happening? When will this end? Now, folks, I know that we have a human tendency at the same time to think that we're the best the world has ever produced while simultaneously thinking that we are the worst that the world has ever produced. We have a tendency of thinking that we're special in our suffering, but the question of where is God, how do I endure this present, isn't a new question. It isn't new at all. In fact, it's a tale as old as time, as God's people have always been hard-pressed by living in the now, always hard-pressed by living in what is. This is actually reflected this morning in our psalm for today, Psalm 97, which Andre read for us. We aren't given clues about when this particular psalm was written. Some psalms tell us that this psalm was written, for example, in, in uh, Psalm 51, this psalm was written by David after his sin with Bathsheba. Well, if you have your Bibles open to Psalm 97, you'll see that there is no subscription. There's no subscript. It doesn't tell us when it was written. Perhaps, however, it was written in the midst of exile. As Jerusalem had been conquered by the Babylonians, the temple destroyed, and the people taken out of their home, the place of promise. If this is the case, this psalm addresses people who are hard-pressed. This psalm addresses people who are living in the brokenness of exile, who have been removed from their homes forcibly under military guard, conquered by an army. And this psalm calls those people to praise the Lord. The psalm calls people to live with hope in the present, looking toward the future that God has promised. And so in the midst of dog bites and bee stings, how do we go on? How do we endure? 
We look to God and what God has promised. You see, Psalm 97 is indeed a hymn of praise to Yahweh, who is the king of creation. It's a hymn of praise to Yahweh because of his promise of coming, his future tense coming into his creation with justice and with righteousness, bringing about deliverance for the faithful and judgment upon evil. This psalm of praise proclaims that it is Yahweh who reigns, that it is Yahweh who is coming to reign, and that when Yahweh comes, his enemies will be judged and destroyed while his faithful people will be preserved and saved. The HBO miniseries Band of Brothers, anybody ever watched that? It was a fantastic show. The HBO miniseries Band of Brothers follows a company of U.S. paratroopers through the preparation and experience of invading Europe on D-Day. In one scene, immediately after they had uh, jumped into France, they had jumped out of their airplanes, these paratroopers hit the ground in France. They were spread out, not where they should have been, all of these paratroopers. And one of the main characters, Lieutenant Winters, who only recently passed away, Lieutenant Winters and Private Hall were wandering through the French countryside before meeting up with the rest of the Americans. And in this scene, the, both in the book with, uh, with Ambrose, Stephen Ambrose's book, and in the film that is, that is based upon, uh, the private radiates fear and insecurity. But the lieutenant, Lieutenant Winters, he speaks with a calm confidence coming from his careful study of the maps and from the maturity of his training. He sees the big picture, and following his leadership, they soon find themselves reconnected with their comrades. They rendezvous with the rest of the Americans. But in that dark French forest, <coughs> this is the conversation that Winters and Hall have. The private asks, do you have any, any idea where we are, sir? Some, Lieutenant Winters replies, I need your help to locate some landmarks to get our bearings. So keep your eyes peeled for buildings and farmhouses, bridges and roads. And Private Hall says, I wonder if the rest of them are as lost as we are. Lieutenant Winters responds, we're not lost, Private. We're in Normandy. <laughs> because of his training, he knew where he was. He knew what the end goal was going to be. And so Lieutenant Winters had confidence, even in a dark French forest with gunfire all around him. You see, the Bible reveals to us, the scriptures proclaim to us God's map, so to speak. And he proclaims to us his coming, which gives to us in the darkness of this world an orientation, a big picture of where we are and where we're headed. So like Lieutenant Winters, we can have confidence and hope and thanksgiving even when it all goes so horribly wrong. The promise of God's coming is a call to praise and live in faithfulness in the present with hope for his future. The psalm, Psalm 97, is absolutely clear as it first proclaims the one who is coming and thus the one upon whom we can count. Yahweh comes in this psalm in all of his sovereign, glorious majesty. He says, the Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. 
Clouds and darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the peoples see his glory. The psalmist begins by describing what is often referred to as a theophany, which is just a fancy word that means visible appearance of God. Quite often in the Old Testament, when there is a visible manifestation of the presence of God, it is recorded in ways that communicate the greatness, the unfathomable immensity of God. Here in Psalm 97, as in Exodus chapter 19, Yahweh comes with clouds and darkness, with fire and with lightning. When God's appearances are marked by these things, he's revealing to his creation that he is absolutely other than. He's greater than that which he's created. He is holy. He's revealing something about the fact that he can only be truly understood as he allows himself, as he reveals himself to be truly understood. Because God's infinite majesty is impenetrable to the finite human mind without divine illumination. He comes to make himself known with righteousness and justice. He comes as the sovereign king of all of creation, the Lord, the psalmist tells us, of all the earth. He's coming, exercising his dominion over all of creation, over time and over space and over history. He comes to carry out his will, and nothing can thwart his purposes. At his coming, he judges and he saves. He proclaims his righteousness, and people see his glory. Who and what God has promised to redeem, he will redeem, and that which he has defined as evil will be judged as evil, purged from the earth as his adversaries. And the poet here, the psalmist, is so confident in God's promises because of the character and being of God that he writes these future tense promises as if they've already occurred. He writes them as writing something not future tense, but writing something as if it was happening in his midst before his eyes. That's how confident he was in the promises of God's coming. Yahweh then will come in all of his glorious and majestic sovereignty as the king of all creation. And when he does, creation will respond. The heavens will proclaim his righteousness and all the peoples will see his glory. He will come and he will judge and he will deliver. Now having looked at this portion of Psalm 97, let's pause for just a moment and consider something from the New Testament. Let's consider what it means for Psalm 97 to be read in light of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. About Jesus, the author of Hebrews writes, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. For he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. What this means in reference to Psalm 97 is simply this. What is true of Yahweh in Psalm 97 is true of Jesus. 
As the New Testament makes clear, the coming of Yahweh, the triune God of Israel, the covenant king of Israel, the creator of all that exists, the coming of Yahweh, the Lord, is accomplished and fulfilled in the bodily coming, the physical coming of Jesus, the crucified, risen, and ascended Christ. And if that doesn't get an amen, y'all are asleep. (laughs) Scripture makes clear. Scripture makes absolutely clear. Jesus has ascended, and he will descend in all of his majestic glory. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 30, listen to what Jesus proclaims, and hear Psalm 97. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man, who is Jesus, the Son of Man, coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. In Psalm 97, Yahweh rode upon the clouds. In Matthew chapter 24, it is Jesus who comes with the clouds as his chariot. What is true of Yahweh is true of Jesus. In a sermon from September 7, 1879, Charles Spurgeon said, the glory of God will most abundantly be seen in the second advent of our Lord. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. Scripture makes clear Jesus is the glory of God revealed to humanity in creation. In a YouTube interview from a few weeks ago, with conservative pundit and Orthodox Jewish believer Ben Shapiro, John MacArthur called Jesus the glory of God personified. We heard Jesus say in our gospel reading this morning, John chapter 17, as Jesus prayed for his church, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. And then he goes on and he states, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see the glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. When Jesus walked upon the earth, he did so to reveal the Father with a glory that was veiled. But all along the way, Jesus, as the author of Hebrews proclaims, is the radiance of the glory of God. And so that majestic glory, that theophonic vision that the psalmist sees, the glory of Yahweh coming into his creation, that glory resides within Jesus, who is the incarnation of the eternal Son of God. That majestic and kingly glory of Yahweh is Jesus' own majestic and kingly glory. Jesus crucified, risen, now ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father where he now reigns. And from the right hand of the Father, he will come again to do what Psalm 97 proclaims he will do, judge and deliver. And that is the Christian hope. When the dog bites, when the bee stings, when cancer attacks and destroys, when good intentions are warped by sin, the Christian hope in this present is the not yet of Jesus coming to judge, Jesus coming to deliver, Jesus coming to reign. And it can be counted on as a hope, a confident expectation of what is to come, not because it makes us feel good, but because it's a promise of Jesus, who is the incarnation of the eternal Son of God, the creator of all that is, the king of this creation. It's not based on us. It's based on him. He comes to judge. He comes to deliver. In fact, Psalm 97 says, Yahweh the creator comes to judge evil. The vengeance is mine, says the Lord. 
in the midst of persecution, the church in Iraq, by the way, is virtually extinct. But in the midst of the persecution of Iraqi Christians, what is their hope? Justice will come when Jesus comes riding on the clouds in his chariot. All worshipers of images are put to shame, we read in Psalm 97, who make their boasts in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. One commentator quips, Yahweh's coming, Jesus' coming is really bad news for all those who organize life around idols. It's really bad news. Scripture makes clear the Creator holds His creation accountable, not to some arbitrary will or whim, but to His perfect righteousness, His justice. And it is Jesus, Scripture makes clear, it is Jesus who is the righteous judge and Savior. In John chapter 5, verse 22, Jesus proclaims, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And this is what is unfolded in our reading from Revelation chapter 22 this morning. It is Jesus who is speaking in verse 12 when he says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Jesus copying the words, echoing the words, repeating the words from the throne in chapter 1. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. As Yahweh is depicted coming in his sovereign majesty to judge and to save, so Jesus is shown to come in his sovereign majesty to judge and to save. Discussing those within his kingdom and those outside of his kingdom, Jesus declares, Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Like the idolaters of Psalm 97, these people have rejected God. They've refused God's offer of grace, of God's offer of forgiveness. They've refused the kindness and mercy of God in Jesus' death. They've refused life offered in his resurrection. They've refused to sip of the water of life. And having rejected Jesus then, when he comes to judge, they will find only an empty entry in the book of life. And thus they have no part of Revelation's new creation, the revelation of the garden city, the new Jerusalem. There's a special focus in Psalm 97 and in Revelation 22 on idolatry. Because idolatry lies at the heart of a whole lot of sinful behavior. An idol is anything that God's creation, uh, anything of God's creation that is treated as God. To commit idolatry is to exchange the worship of the one true God for the worship of something that is not God. And when confronted with the one true God, that not God is exposed to be nothing more than a lie. Nothing more than an empty promise to save, an empty promise of solution, an empty promise of salvation. When confronted with the one true God in Jesus Christ, any idol, including ourselves, any idol, including a good thing, any idol is shown to be exactly like turkey bacon. (laughs) Turkey bacon is a plate full of lies. They promise you health and goodness and salvation, and yet it is nothing more than ashes in the mouth. (laughs) Idols are nothing more than turkey bacon. They can't save you. 
And when they're confronted with the one who can, their true nature is revealed. They are shown to be nothing more than garbage, than a lie. God is greater than these so-called gods. He is so great, in fact, that the poet of Psalm 97 calls those things gods. He calls them to praise Yahweh in recognition of his greatness. That which is opposed to God, those idols and the idolaters, they will receive justice from the righteous hand of God. And those who are faithful, they will be delivered. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice, our poet writes, because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Just as his coming was bad news for those who commit idolatry, so his coming is good news for his faithful people. Because his good, the good news is Yahweh comes with judgments that are just and righteous They shame idolaters, and they vindicate the faithful. The creator king is and will be exalted as he is above all pretenders. He's everything these idols are not. Yahweh is true. He actually exists. He is worthwhile, strong, and mighty, able to save. He is so far and above all other gods that there isn't even a real rivalry. The rest are just cheap imitations while Yahweh is the real the deal. Scripture makes clear Jesus is the one who brings Yahweh's majesty. Scripture makes clear Jesus is the one who judges. Scripture makes clear the one who judges is also the one who saves. In Revelation chapter 22, Jesus is continuing to speak here. and He says, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. And a little bit later, John adds this, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Folks, that is the majestic and sovereign Jesus delivering. He saves those who have washed their robes and those who have responded to the call of the Spirit to come and drink the water of life that Jesus gives to offer. Those who have responded to Jesus with faith are those who have washed their robes and have been made clean by Jesus and His blood, washed whiter than snow. These are the men and women who seek first the kingdom of God, who hold firm in their faith of Jesus in the face of pressure to conform with the world. And though they are not perfect, These are those who live in obedience out of their love to Jesus and the Word of God. Within the book of Revelation, those who have washed their robes, these are the ones who find their names written in the Lamb's book of life and for whom the new creation, the garden city, and the new Jerusalem was prepared. Salvation is given through Jesus' blood shed upon the cross and in the newness of life given through the resurrection as the Holy Spirit applies Jesus' work of redemption by grace through faith. Those who are judged as enemies of God are those who have rejected the cross. They've rejected Jesus and his resurrection. What we're seeing here, this biblical theme, what is said of Yahweh in Psalm 97 is said of Jesus in the New Testament And this gives us a call to live in the present. 
to live in the now in view of then, to live in the already, whatever may come, as lost as we may be in the dark forest of Normandy, to live now with a big picture view of what is to come. What is to come? Only Jesus. This descending to judge, to deliver, to rule, and to reign. The question then, and the question now, in light of Yahweh's coming, in, in light of Jesus' glorious return, how are God's people to live? Psalm 97 tells us we are to live with hope, with praise, and with thanksgiving. The promise of his coming is a call to praise and to live in faithfulness. The last, view, the last verses of Psalm 97, we hear this proclaimed. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. That's how God's people are to live in the now in view of then. This means rejecting that which is evil. This means rejoicing and giving thanks to the triune God for the abundance of grace and salvation, light and joy. It means giving thanks. This means living with hope, a confident expectation of a better tomorrow because of the one who makes the promise. The reality of the already is that God's kingdom people live under the rule and reign of King Jesus now in the present. And while God's kingdom people do not deny the dog bite and the beasting of life, God's people rest in the greatness of the gifts that God has bestowed upon them in Jesus Christ and in the enjoyment of God himself. In this kingdom, there are gifts. There are great gifts. The psalm tells us there is preservation. There is saving. The psalm tells us there is the light of illumination of God's will and his ways. There is the light of understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is the light as the Holy Spirit descends to conform us into the very image of Christ and purging away the darkness within us. There is joy in the great enjoyment of God. The majestic and glorious Creator King has made Himself known in Jesus Christ. Sinful humanity can be forgiven of sins, adopted into the very life of the Trinity, and this means that the not yet of what is to fully come has begun to infiltrate enemy territory as the light of Jesus' new age has begun to dawn in this present darkness. These last few verses of Psalm 97 are an encouragement to persevere, to remain faithful to God the Father through Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. These last few verses are encouragement to hold fast because of the promises of God, the majestic and glorious Creator. God's gift of revelation, showing his people how history ends, and the truth of his triumph in Jesus gives us his big picture. It orients us and lets us know where we are, allowing us to live in the present already, knowing the big picture of the not yet to come. Living under the present reign of Jesus, we can faithfully praise the Lord with joy and with thanksgiving, even in this present evil age, trusting in his preservation, trusting in his deliverance. The command, I call it that too, the command of Psalm 97 is this, rejoice and give thanks for what is and what will be. 
The promise of God's coming is a call to praise and live in faithfulness in the present age with hope for what is to come. Called to live in a particular and peculiar way. Called to have faith in a future that is not yet seen. We look weird to the world around us. And y'all, we better just embrace it. Embrace the weird. Because we do believe in one who is crucified and resurrected even weirder. We believe in one who ascended into heaven and even weirder than that. We believe that we will see him come again riding on the clouds in great glory. And that is our hope. Because of who he is, we can be confident in his promises and thus respond to him, even in this present darkness, with praise and faithfulness. We can live for him and for his kingdom, praying that it would come and that his will would be done. We can live now in view of then, praising and living in faithfulness to our great God, Yahweh, who is manifested in Jesus and will save us into his life. I've said this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Having heard the word read and having heard the word proclaimed, it's appropriate for us to turn and praise the Lord for that which he has promised to do. So let's stand together as our band comes. I'll say a brief prayer and we will worship the Lord. Father, we praise you and give you thanks that you are righteous and you are just and you are true to your word. And so we thank you that Jesus will come with all your majesty to judge, to deliver, to save, to reign. Come and fill us with your Holy Spirit that we may live in that hope with rejoicing and praise. It's in Jesus' name that we come before you, humbly seeking to glorify you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Let's sing together.